of benefit to you. And you may be thinking, we already know what that is. So, so great. Wade and I are going to try to learn that in front of you, and maybe you know we can learn from you. But we're we're going to be looking at the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus uh, starting in mid-April, which is just around the corner. So happy spring to all of you. And. So um, we're going to look at Job, and maybe some of you have noticed, if you've been around IGC a little bit while I've been here, uh, and my name's Tom, by the way, uh, I work with Pastor Wade, and I am supposed to be here. If you're new, welcome. Uh, and my name's Tom, please come meet me afterwards. Um, but you might notice that I've been preaching a lot out of narratives in Scripture. I love uh, all the narratives, because the Bible is one story of God saving and loving a people for himself in Christ from beginning to end, but today's narrative uh, is, I'm not going to cover the whole thing, I mean, we were just reading, Kevin just read out of the end, the last few verses in chapter 42 of Job, and if you saw the title of the sermon, it's, how do you pray for people who don't deserve it? Isn't that so negative sounding? Yeah, I, I tend to do that, I apologize, but um, it's a little bit of a trick question, we're going to get into it, but I wanted to first, because this is about Job's friends, I wanted to first thank you guys as a church for making me a friend, and Wendy too, you guys have really befriended us as a church family, but also a lot of you as individuals. Um, this weekend in particular with the celebration we had yesterday, uh, we we stayed with the Murrays this weekend, um, so we were really grateful to be with their family, and we also were at dinner with some other family. You know, you guys have really become friends, and we're so grateful for that. Um, here's one way I really know that you've befriended us. Um, so at the party yesterday, I was sitting with people, um, Brian and Claire in particular. I usually monopolize Brian and Claire a lot. But we were all sitting there, and David began talking about zombies. You brought it up, right, David? Um, and that is so loving and so much a friend. If you want to talk about zombies and the apocalypse, I know you love me when you do that. And then also we talked about um, the cult of CrossFit and uh, I really appreciated that conversation. So when you guys talk about zombies and CrossFit, I know that you are my friend. So thank you for that. But those weren't really the true signs of friendship for me. What really told me I was becoming a friend of IGC was when Anna told me I needed a haircut. <laughs> I mean, that's a friend. I mean, she, she did it not in, not in front of everyone, just five or six people. And she, she said, hey, Tom, so how long do you wait before haircuts? Like, how long is, you know, is it four weeks? Is it two weeks? And how, you know, and I said, is it time? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So time, so time. So that, that told me I am a friend of IGC. However, Anna needs to know this about my friendship. I'm probably now going to grow it out. Uh, I mean, it makes me want to grow it out now. But, you know, because I'm just that rebellious. Uh, anyway, thank you all um, for all my sticky notes. Thank you for your love and your friendship. I mean that. All right, so Job, you're like, please get to the sermon. I'm like, I get it. So we're looking at how do we pray for those who don't deserve it. Job had friends he prayed for them. God says that they don't deserve the prayers. I mean, it's not Job saying, hey, you guys are bad friends. The Lord actually pointed it out to his friends. 
You guys were wrong about me. You said wrong things about me. And Job's going to pray for you. You don't deserve it, but he's going to pray for you. And then Job did. Even after, they were really bad friends to Job. So for those of you who are the academics in the room who love uh, hearing academic things about Scripture, because there are lots of theological things... So the Job narrative, there's so much controversy over the Job narrative. Was Job a real person? And, um, you know, God, if you don't know the story, if you have your Bibles, go back to Job all the way back from 42. Go to the first chapter of Job. I'm not going to cover the whole narrative, I promise. But if you go back to Job 1, I do want to just say what happens is Satan goes to God and says, hey, I Job. And uh, I see what you've done for him. And he wouldn't follow you. He wouldn't listen to you. He wouldn't care about you if your hand of blessing and all the things that you do for him wasn't the case, right? If you weren't so good, Job would curse you. Like, God and Satan have this conversation. Hugely controversial in the realm of theology and biblical exegesis. Scholars want to argue about... How in the world could this happen? Did it happen? Is it truly, is it just an example? All of that. I'm not going to talk about any of that stuff. So if you're the person in the room or the persons in the room who enjoy that, let me recommend my very favorite, one of my favorite theologians on Job. Her name is Eleanor Stump. You can write that down. If you want Eleanor Stump, she wrote a book in 2010, but she's got a lot of other things that have come out since. And she spends a whole lot of time talking about the narrative of Job. And I think as far as what I've read, there's some good commentaries, good exegetes. She's a philosopher. She's not a biblical exegete. But I find her work as a philosopher and a theologian to be tremendous on the narrative of Job. So if you're interested in that sort of thing... Get with me for coffee. I'll bring my Eleanor Stump with me. Or we can YouTube her. She's got a lot of stuff. And it's amazing. So if that interests you, I'm sorry I'm not talking about any of that today. But I was trying to recap the narrative a little bit. So uh, God unleashes, so to speak, Satan to go have his way with Job, his family, his life. And if this is all, like, you've read the entire book of Job, you know the whole story, this is all like, please don't retell the story. I'm not retelling the whole story, I'm just reminding those who may not know. Because I always think, uh, and my wife has to remind me, I always think that if I'm retelling something in Scripture, that everyone knows this story upside down, inside out, every, backwards and forwards, and I just think everybody knows it. And that's not always the case, because I don't know all of it. So I'm not going to just assume that everyone knows the story of Job. But Job is a man that seemed to be in the middle, caught in the middle, like a meat grinder between God and Satan, having this little test. And it's a theological conundrum, as I already said. See Stump for more details. But what happens is Satan uh, is unleashed by God and ten, all of Job's children die. He loses all his fortunes. He loses, he loses everything, including his health. Everything. He loses everything. And it's all God's doing, all God's allowance. And 
So you can think what you want about all of that happening to him. And God sort of being at the helm when all of that's going down. Uh, God and Satan having a bet. Again, that's crazy thinking. It's crazy. But I'm not going to touch on all of that. But that's what happens. And then in chapter 2 of Job, you have Job's wife. Then his wife, Job's wife, says to Job, Do you still hold fast your integrity? After all that's happened, she lost all the children, all the prosperity, all all of it. She lost it also. I'll just say this. uh, In a lot of commentaries, and maybe even those of you who know the story well, the narrative well, I think Job's wife is always put down quite a lot. Like, she's awful because in verse 9 she says, you're holding to your, your integrity. Curse God and die. Not so support. I mean, she gets a lot of bad press for being an unsupportive wife in this context. And I just, I usually am on board with that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, she doesn't seem very supportive here. Until you think about the fact that she also, like Job, is caught in the meat grinder that is the life that they shared. So, I think she's in her full right to say what she says, to feel the things that she was feeling about her life and Job. So, I'm I'm just pushing against some of the biblical exegetes on that. So, Job's wife, who doesn't seem like a good friend to him here, although I beg to differ. I think she's just being a human person who's going through all of this with her husband. But then the next verse in 11 of chapter 2 begins many chapters of the narrative of Job's friends. Thank you, Kevin, for saying their names. But you've got Eliphaz, you've got Bildad, and Zophar. These friends... And many chapters of their words, their words to Job about him losing all of his children. And again, they're not privy to what God and Satan have been cooking up. They're not privy to any of that knowledge. They don't know anything. Like me, like you. When, when we sit around with other people in our lives, including our spouses, we don't really know what's going on. We don't know what's happening in the spiritual realms. We don't really always know. I'd say most of the time we don't know what God's up to. So Job's friends begin. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. Bez. I've been saving this dad's joke for about a month. And I'm about to give it to you. Because Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, that's Bez. And I think they should have minded their own Bezness. That's my own work. That's my own writing right there. And uh, it's bad. It's a bad dad joke. But, um, but these guys, let me just give you a little glimpse of some of the things that they say. All right. So oh, first, I should mention, uh, because some of you might, if you know the story, if you know the narrative well, you might push against me even saying they were not good friends. Because they actually did sit with Job after all that happened, losing all of his children, I mean, that in itself, losing all of his children. They sat with him for seven days and seven nights. This is at the end of chapter 2, starting at verse 12. They sat with Job for seven days, seven nights, and did not say a word. 
They sat with him. Seven days, seven nights. Didn't speak. There was a good attempt. Let me just say this. This is is my opinion, but I think it, it fits with the ancient Near Eastern world. If someone loses a child, Job had lost ten. They should have sat speechless with him for at least 70 days and 70 nights. Seven days per child, at least. They gave him seven. Not enough. Not long enough. In the ancient Near East, way not enough. Modern America, not enough. So, but I I just wanted to say they attempted. And then they move into their words. So Eliphaz in chapter 4 of Job he gives some of his words, and I, I just want to share some of those words. Am I going in and out, or is it, is it okay? Are we good? Okay. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, um, he, he tells Job, you need to stop being so impatient. You're such a godly man, he says to Job, but now it has come to you, in verse 5 of Job, now it's come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and Job, you're dismayed. So basically, Eliphaz's argument to Job is, you're impatient. You're such a godly figure, Job. You lose everything. You lose your health. Your wife tells you to you know, curse God and die. You lose your children, but you're being impatient. How many people have you got in your life where if you call them impatient, I mean, they're not your friends anymore, usually. How many people can say that you're impatient? Very few. But Eliphaz said, after all that had happened to Job, not knowing anything, Job, you're being impatient. So Eliphaz does that. Bildad goes way further than you're impatient, Job. In chapter 8, Bildad tells Job, you have sinned, dude, and you need to repent, or it's going to get worse. Bildad tells Job to repent. If your children have sinned against God, plead with the Almighty, repent. That's in verse 4 of chapter 8 about Bildad. In verse 20, Bildad says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man. He won't reject a blameless man, so obviously you are to blame, Job. Now, I'm reading a few of the things that they said, and it's really only a few. The words are long, and they are much along this line. Repent. It was your fault. Uh, You are impatient. Actually, Zophar goes so far. Zophar goes so far. Yeah, that's, that's my writing as well. You, Job, deserve worse than what's happened to you. Oh my goodness. Zophar's the worst. I mean, to say to somebody that's lost all their children, who's lost their health, and you know nothing of what God is up to, to say, you know what, you really deserve worse. You should be grateful, Job, because God could have done way worse and you deserved it. What a great friend. However, if any of you have watched the show Friends, have you? No? Anybody? Nobody? Oh, right, you guys don't watch TV, right? Nobody? So, 
I, I really love friends for this reason. They actually say terrible things to each other a lot. Like, you will find episodes where the friends will say, you deserved worse, uh, you are impatient. Like, they say all these types of things to each other all throughout their, all throughout the ten seasons that they are in that show. And the reason why I think we love that show so much is we wish we could say those kind of things to our friends and still have our friends. But we can't. I mean, it's, it's just a show, right? Those aren't real people. I, I'm serious. I've watched episodes of that show and thought, I would seriously not be your friend anymore if you said that to me. There'd be no joking, you know, Chandler, I don't care how funny you are. We would not be friends. So... These friends of Job. So I I hope that's enough recap. Uh, Do you think that these are good friends? I mean, God already said it. We read it. No. But just getting a little bit of data. Yes or no? Not good friends, right? Yes or no? No. Not good friends. All right, so we've got the friends. We've got Job's situation. Now, the... The name of the sermon is, How Do You Pray for Those Who Don't Deserve It? Because these people, when I read what Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz... Oh, and there is Elihu, who's another friend, who also said some okay things. He gets a pass, but I don't even, I'm not even going to touch him. He gets a pass from God, but I don't even like what Elihu had to say. I'm going to stick with Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz. All right, so how do... How do we pray for those who don't deserve it? Because these guys didn't. God tells Job to pray for them. He does it. And then God... However, when God restores the fortunes to Job, just quickly can I say this? Even if he gets ten more children, they're not the ten he lost. it's It's such a hard narrative, isn't it? All right, so how do we pray for those who don't deserve it? It's really a trick question. Because if you think about it, um, who, we definitely have people in our lives who feel like these friends, who, like, who have done harm to us. And I, and I know, sitting in a room with this many people, there are people who've done harm to us. Great harm. Who've said things like, you deserve this. Who've said, you're beyond impatient. You deserve worse. I know. We have friends like this. We have people in our lives like this. But here's the thing. It's really a trick question to even think about how, how would we pray for those who don't deserve it. Because, because Jesus Christ says that we are to pray for our enemies, to, love those who per, to pray for those who persecute us and love our enemies. I think I got it reversed. But it, it's, it's a both and. So Jesus Christ tells us to love and pray for our enemies and to love and pray for those who persecute us. First and second century, those who were persecuting the church were killing them, murdering them. So beyond Job's friends saying, it's your fault, you're impatient, Jesus Christ tells us, as believers sitting in the modern world right now, that we're supposed to love and pray for our enemies. These are Job's friends. You and I are called as believers to pray for our enemies and to to love and, and pray for those who persecute us. And I know some of you a little bit, and there are people in your life that are persecuting you. I know that. 
They're not even persecuting you because of Jesus. They're persecuting you because they're horrible human beings. There are terrible people in the world who persecute and treat you horribly. I feel persecuted every time I drive down here. I've talked to you about some some of you about this, but there are people who drive in the far left lane of the freeway with three miles of cars behind them going 60 miles an hour, completely oblivious. I know we talked about this at lunch yesterday, some of you. I'm sorry. But completely oblivious. Those people are my enemies. Those people are undeserving of anything good for me. Prayers, no. And if you're one of those people, please come see me. We'll try to reconcile this. Because... I'm just going to send you to YouTube for some driving videos. I mean, it, it's, I, have to, I have to break the tension because when I think about how do we pray for those who don't deserve it, when I even think about that question, two people come immediately to mind for me. They're not drivers that I don't know. They're people who have hurt me. They're people that have been horrible friends to me. And they come to mind, and I, I don't think of praying for them. I think of, like, I can't even say what I, I mean, I can't say it in church. It's so hard. So I know I'm a horrible human being who needs the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm a Christian, because I'm a horrible human. But I have to believe that you also have people that come to mind. That you're like, they've hurt me. How? How do I make sacrifice like Job did for his friends? As God commanded. How do I do that? It's so hard. And the answer, the answer is, is actually really simple. The way that we pray for those people that are so, as we see it, so undeserving is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're like, oh no. Really? Yeah. It's the gospel because you see... I, I am Job's friends. I am undeserving of, of your prayers at times. I mean, if I pastor here long enough, and I have already long enough, and I say that long enough to have already probably hurt someone, stood on toes, said things I shouldn't, talk about things I shouldn't, said words I shouldn't, I've already probably done things that put me in a category of, you maybe don't deserve my prayers. Trust me, if you have people in your life long enough. But here's the thing. We are those people in other people's lives. We are undeserving of others' prayers too. So if we're all undeserving, no one ever gets to be prayed for. Because everyone is always undeserving at some If you don't think you're undeserving of someone else's prayers, then you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he did not need to come if you deserve prayer. Because you're an amazing human all the time. Christ did not need to die for for deserving people. He died for those who don't deserve it. He died for those who are unworthy, impatient, and should get way worse. Me. And I'll just speak for me. 
The way I can pray for those two people that come to my mind is that Christ died for me. Christ now prays for me before the throne of God, and I don't deserve it. Because I've hurt people. I've said things I shouldn't. I've done things that I shouldn't. I'm not a moral elite. I'm a moral very middle. And I'm praying that God would continue to change my heart by the power of the, of the gospel and the spirit and his word and you. So Jesus Christ is your friend. If you're a believer, Jesus Christ is your good friend who prays for you, who has sacrificed for you, who gives back all your name, all your children. He gives all the good back to you and prays for you, even as undeserving as we are. Christ is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He gets it. And what he says about you is true. He says true things like all you know, Job's friends are wrong. God says, guys, you're wrong. Jesus, what he says about you is true, whatever it is. And you're thinking, I'm about to say, please, you know, that Jesus says negative things about you. No, Jesus' banner over you is love, church. Jesus' banner over you is unconditional grace and love in the gospel. All the, all the horrible things that you would think Jesus would say, and then it, Jesus would say, oh, you've done this, you're awful this, you're this. I'll pray for you. Jesus says, I see you, and I love you. I died for you. His banner over you is love, church. He's a friend who not only sticks closer than a brother, but will die, who will say before the throne of God, these are mine. These people. That's what I came to say. So, if you're going to pray for somebody undeserving, how about start with me? Please pray for me. I'm undeserving. But Christ loves his people. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. It's almost enough said, Lord. We're so grateful for what Christ has done for us. That he is our good and faithful friend. And brother, so as we partake of the supper, reminding us of his body, his blood, this week of passion, next week also as we walk into Easter, Lord, that you would remind us how good our faithful friend Jesus is. By your spirit, empower us, embolden us to forgive and love those in our lives who must be loved by you, by us, all for your sake, Jesus. Amen. So the night that the Lord was betrayed, so he understands friends betraying. If you have um, this, this is how we partake of the Lord's Supper as believers, as those who have said, Jesus is my friend because you have accepted him as your Lord, as the one who, who has saved you. This very um, simple meal, this represent, representation of a meal is for those who know him who are loved by him. If you're visiting today and that's not, you're not a part of a church, if you're not a believer, we welcome you, but this is not for you. Come talk to me if you want to find out more. But on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed by his, 
by his people, by his friends. He took bread, he broke it, gave thanks and said, this is my body given for you. Let's take together. Likewise, the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, may these simple elements remind us of your friendship of you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.